This is your host, Christopher Calloway. Welcome to this week's Creator Talks. The idea for Harkins Raiders, a World War II story, was the brainchild of Army veteran Alan Cordry. He has enlisted the services of two comic book veterans, Ron Mars, to write the book, and Daryl Banks to illustrate it. It is being published through Ominous Press and is being funded through a Kickstarter, the deadline of which is December 21st. Ron Mars and Daryl Banks are known for creating the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern and the Green Lantern Emerald team for DC Comics. And what is Harkins Raiders about? Captain Harkin leads a crack special operations executive team of American commandos behind enemy lines. The mission, retrieve a German scientist who holds the key to stopping the Nazi war machine and safely escort him to England. The problem, everything goes wrong and Harkin's men find themselves in a fight for their lives. We also talk about another book available through the Kickstarter, The Art of Daryl Banks. Another Kickstarter from Ron coming in 2019, Beasts of the Black Hand Volume 2, and Ron's next work coming out through Dynamite Comics, Turok, in January of 2019. All these things and more, including my fun questions that I ask all my guests. This show is sponsored by The Comic Book Shop in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. So please now join my conversation with Ron Mars and Daryl Banks on their Kickstarter, Harkins Raiders. Here now on Creator Talks. Ron, welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Daryl, welcome also. Hello, everybody. Hi, Chris. I appreciate being here. Now, you guys are the team that created the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern, the Green Lantern Emerald team, and you want to bring us Harkins Raiders, but you guys need our help. Daryl, can you whip up a We Need You Uncle Sam poster? We want you to help <laughs> back this project. Why don't we think of an Uncle Sam poster? There's still time. We're shockingly dim-witted, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, that's all I'm going to say about Green Lantern. So we're not going to go off on a tangent on that, I promise. <laughs> oh, there's no problem. We don't mind talking about that. Nor should you. But I do want to focus on Harkins Raiders. And I read a few war comics when I was little. I started with Stan Jack and Dick Ayers, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. And there are a few more on my list I want to get to. But more recently, I had read a lot of Garth Ennis, Battlefields, War Stories, Streaming Eagles. Are there any war comics that each of you enjoyed reading in the past or read today? Not me. I have to admit, I really enjoyed seeing anything by Kubert, like, you know, Enemy Ace and that sort of thing. It definitely was inspiring, even though I wasn't into Well, that wasn't World War II. That was World War I. Mm-hmm. I, I. Okay. But as far as war comics, no, not really. But still, I appreciate the amount of effort. And I think about Michael Golden's The Nam. Didn't read it, but, you know, I didn't get into war comics, but some great stuff was put out in that genre. I actually read probably more war comics as a little kid than I read superhero comics because a lot of times when I got to the spinner rack at the drugstore, all of the superhero stuff had been picked over and the war comics were left. So I was actually probably too young to be reading the kind of comics that i was reading you know it was it was you know gi combat and stuff like that um and certainly a lot of Kubert stuff enemy ace sergeant rock i remember those fondly from 
being a little kid with a, you know, with a dollar in my hand or something like that and getting as many comics as I could get. And, you know, then I sort of, I guess, graduated to more superhero stuff and I didn't look at a whole lot of war comics. And, and frankly, there weren't a whole lot of war comics being produced at that point when I was um, starting to get into Avengers and X-Men. So, yeah, I mean, more recently, Garth stuff is obviously what I've been looking at, what I've been reading to get my dose of mostly World War II goodness. There's a copy of Dreaming Eagles, the book he did with Aftershock, sitting on my desk as we speak. And certainly I think Garth does the best war comics we've got out there by far. Now, in the intro, I explained to everyone what Harkins Raiders is about. One thing I found was that it was an idea cooked up by an Army veteran, Alan Cordry. Can you tell me what you know about him? Who is he? And how did he get connected with you guys to create this 9 by 13 64-page hardcover graphic novel? The mysterious Alan Cordry. I think Daryl's actually the first guy that met Alan. Is that right, Daryl? I believe so. But for some reason, I keep remembering it being in Cleveland or Akron, and he said it wasn't. It was Wizard World Columbus. But for some reason, the uh, the show, do you remember we did a show in, it was like a real tiny show in Cleveland in like the smallest holiday in ever. And we hadn't seen each other in like 15 years. And I think Alan stopped by there. For some reason, I was thinking that was the first time. He said, no, there was one time before that. But I met Alan and, you know, he was a fan of Green Lantern and other things. And, you know, we just hit it off right away. But, you know, just like Ron will tell you, you know, if you had a dollar for every time you met someone that's a fan of your work and has an idea for a comic that's really going to take off, you know, <laughs> we'd be rich. But Alan actually had plans on what he wanted to do with his band breed studios and all that. Plans that included, shockingly enough, money. <laughs> they would ask alan how did you get terry austin and rick leonardi and guys like that well you gotta pay them <laughs> Where, and, and not pay them in aren't you excited that we have this great idea you know get caught up in this idea you've never heard of but you should be excited like i am you know alan he put his money where his mouth was and also it helps that alan's a really good guy he's good follow-through and his ideas for harkins raiders it's something that it matters to him it's not just something he just threw out a bunch of ideas that, you know, what's hot right now? I think I'll do World War II. He actually thought this through and worked with Ron extensively on coming up with this concept. Yeah, I think Alan, you know, and I had done a little bit of work for Alan here and there on the self-published stuff he was doing. And I always found him to be a pleasure to work with. And, you know, it's just kind of like making comics with your friends. Interestingly enough, one of the things that I did for Alan was a World War II story that was actually about my father. It was about my father's experiences in World War II because I was a very late in life baby for my parents. So my father was a World War II veteran. He was a tail gunner in a B-24J in the Pacific Theater. So I ended up writing this story about my father's war experiences largely and then about him dying from pancreatic cancer because the story was a benefit for raising money for pancreatic cancer research. So in some ways, this is kind of full circle that we're now back telling a World War II story. And Alan approached me probably a couple of years ago now with just the basic concept. And he said, look, I have this idea I want to tell. I have this story, but I don't know that I'm experienced enough as a writer to do it, would you come in and, and script it? Would you, you know, write this thing for me? And he t- described it to me and I said, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. And we kicked around a few artists and ultimately settled on Daryl, which was obviously music to my ears and chance for us to work together again. I'm obviously always going to take advantage of that. You know, we went from uh, cosmic superhero to Daryl having to reference what a bunch of World War II airplanes looks like. <laughs> Amongst other things. <laughs> 
Now, did Alan talk at all about his military experience and how that influenced his idea for the story? Not to me, anyway. I mean, I know I know he's a veteran, and he hasn't really discussed much of it uh, with us. He seems to be one of those guys who he just doesn't talk about that a whole lot. I know that that's a large part of his background. He's no longer in the military, but I know that part of this story is to sort of honor the military tradition that he's a part of. Now, your father was a World War II vet, as you said. Did he talk about his experience at all? Because I know some vets don't like to talk about World War II. I didn't know if he was very open about that. He didn't talk about it a whole lot. As you said, he was part of that greatest generation, and you didn't really talk about your experiences. You went and did what you were supposed to do. And if you were fortunate enough to come back, you moved on with your life and you know had a family and raised your kids and didn't really dwell on it a whole lot. But later in life, he sort of started to re-embrace it a bit. He went to the reunions of his bomber group in various places, one of them actually in Ohio, where Daryl lives. So he got back in touch with a lot of the guys that he served with later in life. And he was proud of his it was proud of his service, but he didn't tell a lot of war stories. He told a few war stories that I was privy to, and that's to great extent what formed the story that I wrote for Alan and which Rick Leonardi and Andy Lanning drew and is still one of the things I'm most proud of in my career. I got a glimpse into what he went through in World War II, but I, you know, I regret that I don't have more of a knowledge of the day-to-day the time between the missions and and the kind of stuff that happened to him. I never pressed him to talk about it. I figured if he wanted me to know certain things, he would tell me. So I got some details. I got some stories. I got some stories from the men that he served with on his bomber crew when they would visit the house or we would go to visit when I was a little kid. He was not a chatterbox. He was just what you would expect somebody from that generation to be. And that's what this story is about is real heroes, not superheroes, but actual people who fought for our country, fought for freedom and gave their lives in many cases. So with this team that you've created for this story, who is Harkin? And tell me about the other eclectic cast's who comprised the members of the team, dropped behind enemy lines, and most importantly, how did Alfie get drafted? <laughs> <laughs> they have a dog draft board, apparently. It's a made-up story, as we say in comics. It's an imaginary story. We're making up an adventure that takes place during World War II. You know, we're not telling the real-life exploits of World War II soldiers, but we want to capture some sense of realism as we're doing it. Harkin is the leader of a uh, basically a commando team that is part of the SOE, which is a real branch of the British military, the Special Operations Executive, uh, which was founded in 1940 at the behest of Churchill, I believe. They were the guys that, uh, and women, that got dropped behind enemy lines, that did espionage missions, that worked with the local resistance to the Nazis. Their real-life exploits read like fiction, read like stories you would make up. So our team is a team of Americans, a couple of guys from New York City, a guy from Minnesota, a guy from San Francisco, and Harkin himself. This is their sort of covert action team, for the purposes of our story, is dropped into Finland to snatch up a German scientist who has information about secret Nazi war plan, secret Nazi scientific advancement that could change the course of the war. Their mission is to drop into occupied Finland, grab this guy, 
and get back out with him, bring him back to the UK. And of course, everything goes sideways and therein lies our story. And Daryl, as far as the characters themselves, what references did you use for the team? Fortunately, I had really good descriptions of what they were to look like. I always try to envision, I like to cast characters that I'm going to draw just so that they don't look generic. That was kind of difficult, but I mean, with some, I had a strong idea of what I wanted them to look like. George Harkin, he's kind of a combination of different Hollywood leading man type characters, but I didn't want him to look like Hal Jordan. That was the, that was the one mandate I gave myself. He'll probably even have a bomber jacket at one point, maybe, but I thought, don't make him look like Hal Jordan. I had just that one mandate as far as Harkin's Raiders. George Harkin's the main character. I thought, I've got to give him a look that doesn't feel like something that's just like, oh, that's just... Howl without the mask. So uh, really it's in the hair more. I looked at, you know, ha- hairstyles of the period. You know, I like to do that sort of thing whenever I'm drawing something repeatedly. But like I said, fortunately, I had really specific descriptions in the script that really gave me a lot to work with to help flesh it out. I mean, as I'm reading it, I, I like to sketch as I'm reading it. I used to read scripts in advance, but actually Terry Austin once said, don't start drawing anything until you're reading it for the first time because chances are the first things that pop into your head will be the freshest idea. And that's something that, you know, artistically I've lived by for quite some time. I really appreciate Terry telling me that that's been such a big help. When I read something too far in advance, I find myself being more influenced by other things rather than what comes to mind for me personally. You know, the main goal is because this isn't superheroes and robots and all that, you know, we have to make this visually interesting to go along with the great script we're working with. So, you know, like I said, just like to flesh out characters so that the fans will be able to realize that these are actual characters. These are people with names and backstories, that sort of thing. And that's what I wanted to go for visually. Now, in terms of the types of aircraft, the weapons, the uniforms worn by the military, how did you go about researching that and referencing that? Because there are those in the military who will say, well, that's not right. So, you know. Oh, that's happened already. Oh. That's happened already. Okay. Uh, I had a preview page, I think, at a convention. A guy goes, oh, well, the German plane's like, oh, well, the swastika is at the wrong angle. And I wanted to tell him, like, well, the reference I used was from a photograph. So, like, the real plane was wrong then also. Yeah, sometimes you just got to let comic fans just pretend like they're experts and just say, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, it's wrong. Sorry about that. This is one of those things where I have to reference everything. I'm not even a novice when it comes to World War II, which is a good thing because whenever I'm working on a project and it's, it's forcing me to use muscles creatively I normally don't, it helps me grow as an artist. So if it's a plane that it has a specific, it's especially real world, you know, having to reference that sort of thing, that helps. But the problem is you just never get that right reference for what you need for a panel. So there's a lot of trying to fill in the blanks without it feeling inaccurate because inevitably there will be that fan that goes, well, the P-128D didn't have a this, that, and the other. You know what I mean? But, you know, I, I, I do the best I can with it. You can't please everybody, but we give it a shot. I want to know from both of you, what themes do you think are contained in Harkins Raiders that will connect with the 21st century audience? Because this is a World War II story, and they're still very interesting, but what is it about this story you think is going to connect with people? A heroic story is a heroic story, whether we're talking something real-world or fantasy. I think when you have a sense of overcoming odds to accomplish something that's difficult, I think everybody has that moment in their life where they're trying to accomplish something, at least I hope so. And I feel that this will hopefully inspire. You think about some of the great war movies, they're obviously based on real-world events, but that sense of teamwork with the right buddies on your side, you can do anything. And it doesn't look like you can do anything, but we can stick together and we can get this thing accomplished. That's what I think that, that 
one of the things that will be appealing. What do you think, Ron? You cast your story out there and you you see what comes back. You see what the response is. I try not to worry about predicting what the audience is going to like, what the audience is going to respond to, because the audience isn't a single entity. It is made up of, well, hopefully thousands of individuals that all have different likes and different tastes. And to me, the only thing you can do is tell a story that you're passionate about and that you believe in and tell it to the best of your ability and hope for the best. I do think telling a World War II story, a story about heroes doing good, is a fairly evergreen concept. You know, certainly we don't go too many years without a sort of major Hollywood production of a World War II film or even elsewhere in the world. You know, European films, films out of Japan or China still in this same time period. One of the old chestnuts is that war brings out the best and worst in people. And that's certainly part of this storytelling tradition that we're plumbing here is the to you know, create characters that the audience hopefully has some sort of attachment to and then do really, really tough, dramatic things to them and hope the audience comes along for the ride. Now, the Kickstarter itself for this book, there's a lot of rewards. People can see it on the website. I will put the link in the show notes. There's the $20 digital copy. There's the hardcover for $30. But there's another hardcover available alone or bundled with the other rewards. And I'm speaking of a fifth in a series of Ominous Press Black Book series, in this case, Black Book, The Art of Daryl Banks, and previous ones included Bart Sears, Andy Smith, Jim Starlin, Graham Nolan. They've all had their own Black Books, and this is the fifth one. Daryl, tell me about this book. It's going to be eight and a half by 11, 100 pages plus of art, including some stuff that's unpublished, I understand. The interesting thing about this is, one, I'm really in great company when it comes to this Black Book series. The list of artists you've mentioned are Hall of Famers in the business. And also, this is my first collected sketchbook of any kind. That's something I've always endeavored to do and just never got around to doing it. I'm very honored and pleased that this will be the first. But hopefully, there'll be some really great stuff in there that people will like. What do you mean, hopefully? It's your stuff. <laughs> Obviously, it's going to be pretty great. <laughs> oh, I just feel like it would be arrogance. Oh, it's full of great stuff. You know, my stuff is so great. You know, I'm like, yeah, that's a... <laughs> well, you know, well, well, it is. Then I'll say it. You know, it's full of great stuff. <laughs> now, obviously, Daryl is too humble to pat himself on the back. But when this whole project came together and when Alan Cordry talked to me and I brought it to Ominous Press to say, hey, maybe this is something we should bring into the family, so to speak. I'm the editor-in-chief at Ominous Press. I have a have a little bit of say in what kind of stuff we publish and what sort of Kickstarter campaigns we do and all that. It was obviously a natural fit. And what we've tried to do at Ominous is do some sort of companion book to whatever graphic novel we're doing. If you are so inclined, you know, if you pledge for one, you might pledge for the second book. I was particularly keen on this because I know what kind of stuff Daryl's got squirreled away in his files. A wealth of great commissions and commercial pieces pinups, all this stuff that the audience has never seen, except for maybe a few people who see stuff on his uh, social media or some of the comic art sites online. But to be able to gather a bunch of that stuff up and put it all under one cover or one hardcover, as the case may be, I was really keen to do it. And I think people are going to kind of be blown away by the wealth of material that will be in the book. And there's another book that you can also get as part of a bundle, if you'd like to, is Beasts of the Black Hand, Volume 1, uh, set near the end of World War One, actually, created by sculptor Paul Harding and written by yourself, Ron, and illustrated by Matthew Dow Smith, who I talked to on the podcast about that Kickstarter, and who I also met at my local comic book shop, the comic book shop, when he was doing the Where We Live book tour. 
and it was great to meet him in person. So this will also be a possible reward if you choose to select that. And there's a second volume in the works. Yeah, we're working on the second one now. That'll definitely be out next year. Hopefully we'll be kickstarting it in the next couple of months as Matt gets more pages in the can. And then a month or two after the Kickstarter, we'll send the book off to press and have the companion volume. One of the real pleasures of being part of Ominous, being you know editor-in-chief and part owner and all that, is that we can kind of do the books we want to do. That's obviously a huge boon creatively. And it's also a pleasure to be able to do the books in the format that we want to do, or at least the format that I want to do if I'm throwing my will around. So both Harkins and Beast of the Black Hand are essentially in the European album format. It's a oversized hardcover, about 13 by nine. I really wanted to make sure that we were making books that weren't just sort of throwaway comics. We wanted to do some really nice production on the books, make them showpieces for the company. And also, frankly, doing the art at a larger size, having some extra pages in the book to show off sketches and what we end up calling DVD extras. To me, it all makes it a much more attractive package for the audience. Beasts Volume 1 is something I'm really proud of, and and I just love the way the book came out. Harkins is the next one that'll be... Uh, that'll be printed in that same format. And so you've done several Kickstarters for books published through Ominous Press. So why is that you've started with Kickstarter versus just going right through a catalog? Is it because of the, well, not only funding the writers and artists, but is it because of the format, too, of the books, that they're more that European style, the, the oversized versus your standard comic book? We sort of looked at it like doing these books as hardcover graphic novels first, right off the bat, is more like the traditional publishing plan of books. We kind of feel like we're doing books, not necessarily comics. For the book market, books come out in hardcover first, and then they come out as slightly smaller trade paperbacks, and then they come out as uh, smaller paperbacks. So that's really the model we're kind of looking at, which is we do the nicest package for the hardcore audience, for the collector's market that's going to show up on Kickstarter or that comes and sees us at a convention, or that wants to order them off the Ominous Press website. This is sort of the lavish, oversized package. And then down the road, maybe we decide to do it as a trade paperback or single issues. Uh, We have the ability to sort of go down that road and present it in as many formats as possible. But the first one, the one that hopefully appeals to the most loyal audience that we have, is this oversized hardcover. And so far it's worked out that, you know, we've gotten... Very nice response to uh, the Kickstarter campaigns. And obviously it's a way to connect directly with the audience. We make the book we want to make in the format we want to make it, and then we sell it directly to the audience. It's a very sleek, clean process. And, you know, frankly, from a financial point of view, there's no middleman. There's no distributor hoovering up 50% of the revenue to simply deliver it to a comic book store. Not that that's not a route that we've gone down. Ominous publishes regular comics through IDW that go through Diamond and into your local comic shop. So we do that as well. But for this kind of original content, essentially creator-owned content, this is the format that we're pursuing. Well, the system works because I got Beast of the Black Hand, which is a gorgeous book, very well made. And then, of course, I was on the list for this one. So I'm like, all right, I'm in. So it definitely helps to build that audience, that loyal audience who likes this format of comic. Outside of that, in the regular comic format, you have something coming up in January through Dynamite Entertainment, Turok one of my favorite characters of all time. This one's going to be set in the 1880s near the end of the Indian Wars. There you are with wars again, Ron. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's a fresh start, ground floor. So if you haven't read Turok before, uh, you can jump right in at the beginning. But it has the spirit of Turok that we've all known over the years, as far as it's being Native Americans in a lost land with dinosaurs, most importantly. Now, have you Can't read... <laughs> no, no, what's not the love there? <laughs> Have you read, either of you, any of the previous runs, like the Gold Key original ones, or the Valiant back in the 90s, or some of the ones they've done in Dynamite the past few years? Yeah, I've actually read most of that stuff. I haven't read all of the Gold Key material, because it's, I don't believe it's all available. I, and I think maybe the, the reprints that Dark Horse did for a while of the stuff in the 50s and 60s is not still in print, but I, I had an awareness of it. I was aware of and read the Valiant stuff in the 90s because my buddy Bart Sears was drawing it and drawing the hell out of it. And obviously I've seen the different iterations that Dynamite has done. When they came to me and said, do you want to do Torak? And I said, sure. Is it going to have dinosaurs in it? Sure. Uh, <laughs> what's your take on Torak? And I said, it's a guy who fights dinosaurs. How's that grab you? And they said, you know what? That works. That sounds good. So let's do that. I'm not overthinking it. I'm not trying to recreate the wheel. I'm not trying to do the story that tells you everything you thought about Torok was wrong, and this is how it actually works. The best time that's ever happened is Alan Moore's anatomy lesson in Swamp Thing, and nobody's ever going to top that, so don't do it. So my take is a bit of a fresh start in that it's set in the Old West, but it doesn't put the lie to any previous versions and will show you how it doesn't put the lie to previous versions as the series goes on. But for anybody that's never looked at a Torah comic in their life, you know, all you got to do is show up. Uh, you can plug into it. It's Torok and his brother Andar, and they're being pursued by a small force of cavalry officers, a cavalry officer and his men, who intend to capture them and drag them back to the reservation in Oklahoma. And then we show up with some dinosaurs. It's hitting... All of my sort of 12-year-old in love with dinosaurs and Edgar Rice Burroughs and Robert E. Howard moments. Like, nobody shows up to Jurassic Park or Jurassic World movies to see the actors. Everybody's there to see the dinosaurs. I know right. I'm there to see the dinosaurs. You're going to get plenty of dinosaurs. And Roberto Castro's doing the interior of that. And as you mentioned, uh, Bart Sears, isn't he doing a variant cover along with uh, Butch Geis is also doing some variant covers? Bart is doing some covers. Butch Geis is doing some covers. We've got a few other gents. Jeffrey Verrege, whose name I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce, but who is a Native American artist in the Northwest and who was somebody that I was really keen to have be a part of this, is doing a variant cover. Uh, which is just spectacular. So yeah, I mean, we're bringing the the A-list guys in for covers and Roberto Castro's art is just breathtaking. I've seen his stuff over the years. He's done quite a bit of work for Dynamite. We actually had Roberto try out for the book because we wanted to make sure we got the right guy. This is a book that not anybody can just step in and draw. You got to be able to do the landscapes and the dinosaurs and all that stuff. And Roberto's uh, sample pages just knocked it out of the park. I absolutely think he's doing the best work of his career. The kind of stuff he's doing is is really breathtaking. And I'm really pleased with uh, first issues going off to press very shortly, if it's not even, might even be out today or tomorrow. Uh, I'm really pleased with how it's turning out. I'm having a ball. That's ultimately what all of this is, is about, is you make up stories with your friends. Both Harkins and Turok, I'm having a ball on. I'm excited to check them both out. And before we leave Comic Talk, Daryl, is there anything else that you're working on besides you know your art book? and Harkins Raiders that we should know about. I don't know if we're supposed to talk about that other thing yet. 
I was wondering about that. Uh, stay tuned. But right now, Harkins, that's something that we can definitely keep plugging. But there are other things. I mean, I still do commercial illustration and ton of commissions. And fortunately, or unfortunately, my convention uh, circuit is over already. So I can stay chained to the table for the rest of the year and pick back up and uh, think my convention appearances. But other than that, that's it. That's that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Well, we'll move on to my fun questions to ask all my guests. I'll ask each of you first, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? We'll start with you, Daryl. <laughs> Go to sleep. You know, that's one reason I got into art, because it's something I really like to do. But there are times where, yeah, I need to take a break. But I mean, yeah, I'm big into you know, certain TV shows. And of course, I'm a big toy collector also. So, you know, things that kind of take my mind off things. And then it's time to plug back in and, and do what I do. And I, you know, I'm a little bit of a football fan, you could say. Okay. And what kind of toys do you like to collect? Things that I grew up on, superhero type of things. And I'm a big fan of superheroes from Japan also. You know, the Godzilla, Ultraman, all that kind of stuff. That's most likely my favorite. You know, even different forms of art is still, it's a hobby and it's my profession because I'm always learning. I'm never satisfied with what I do. I mean, we were just talking about Turok. I did a cover for Turok Evolution for Acclaim Comics back in, oh, wow, 2002. That was my Turok connection. I think I read it back then just to get a little insight on it. Yeah, that was the long and short of it. Art is not a, okay, I've got to the point where I'm happy with what I do and then that's it. To me, it's I've got to keep learning, not just to be competitive, but just to keep it interesting. Right now, a lot of what I'm practicing on my own is I really want to get more into digital painting. Harkins, I'm drawing it digitally. I look at artists out there, especially you see concept art for a lot of these recent Marvel films and the conceptual illustrations that are done digitally. I'm just amazed by that. I thought, I want to learn that. I can do it to an extent, but you know, I want to go deeper with it. So I would say my learning is also part of my hobby and relaxation. How about you, Ron? I work in comics, so there's there's really not a lot of either of those. But I'm, I'm trying to be better about it and trying to set some parameters that get me away from the desk a little bit. And I think that's probably the answer that you would get from everybody in the business. Um, but when I can get away from the desk, I read. I read comics. I read books without pictures. I see movies, play golf, and play tennis. Unfortunately, I'm not playing golf right now. It's a little nippy out. <laughs> yeah, not right uh, although there there have been years where I played golf into the like first week of January before the snow really flew. So I guess it's indoor driving ranges for me for the next couple of months until the snow goes away. Well, it's one of those sports you have to keep up with, I guess. I mean, you can't just take several months off and think you're going to jump back out there in the spring and it's going to be the same as it was when you left off in the fall, right? Well, I suck either way, so it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter. It's not. I'm not good at it. I just like to do it. I taught my son to play, and now he kicks my ass regularly. So <laughs> that's that's my reward for that particular good deed. Um, but, you know, we were talking about my father earlier, and my father took up golf about the same time I did as a teenager. I would go out and golf with him sometimes, and he was not a golfer-type guy. He was an outdoors, you know, riding horses sort of guy and took up golf after he retired, and um, he never kept score. Like, we would go out and golf, and— you know, he wasn't any good at it either, but he wouldn't keep score. It was just a thing to do that he enjoyed. You know, he enjoyed the walk around the course and it would drive me nuts when I was a teenager. Like, why don't, why aren't you keeping score? Why don't you, don't you want to know how you're doing? And he didn't care if he got to the seventh hole and decided, well, um, I had enough for today. I'm not going to do it anymore. He would pick up his ball and leave. I would stand there gaping because I couldn't wrap my teenage mind around it. And now, of course, now all you understand. Years- all these years later, 
I get it. I don't keep score. I leave when I'm, I leave when I feel like it. It's the experience for me. It's not the pursuit of the score. It's the the act of doing. You know, maybe in a different life, I, I get to play golf every day and dabble in comics. <laughs> well, playing that way without keeping score, you're probably happier and less stressed. Oh, absolutely. Right, right. Like, and I look. I, I I like to do well. I know when I'm doing well, but I don't get uh, wrapped up in it in that way much like my dad 30 years ago i just like going for a walk and hitting the ball once in a while sounds relaxing thinking back to a favorite birthday of yours any birthday why did that birthday stand out in your memory what made it so special my most recent one because i'm still here i i i i I guess when i think about that's a humorous response but you know i don't take life for granted matter of fact i just found out that my stepbrother passed away last night oh wow you know it's one of those things where not to cast a dark mood over things but just you know i i guess i i don't take my life for granted i have a lot of things to be thankful for but you know also i have a fond memory when i turned 17 there was a radio i always wanted because i had this little six billion dollar man uh, radio that could get one station and i think when i turned 17 i got a radio that could get various stations and i had a tape recorder in it also and so that kind of stands out you know that's about all i can think of off the top of my head i don't really remember a lot of them, other than everybody's nice to you on your birthday. That's kind of cool. But if I had to pick one that I know stands out, November 17th, 1978, which is the day that the Star Wars Holiday Special aired. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Having just seen Star Wars the summer before at exactly the right age to be enchanted and have my life changed by seeing that on the big screen. Mm-hmm. My birthday rolls around in 1978, and they're going to have a Star Wars special on tv this is before vcrs and dvrs any way to see what you want when you want you went to the movies to see star wars and then it was gone Mm -hmm. so i was so staggeringly excited to have this (laughs) next glimpse of star wars uh, we all were (laughs) debuting on my birthday and then like 15 minutes into it i'm like this sucks It's Art Carney, and what is this bullshit? Right. I remember even as a kid who didn't know any better being horribly disappointed by this thing. So I'm sure I had a good birthday that year, but that still sticks out. <laughs> kind of like, oh, that's you, what you we didn't got. Like the dance sequences? You didn't like those uh, the choreographed dance sequences? I didn't, like, the uh, I didn't like Lumpy or whatever the hell his name is. <laughs> it was just the Wolsey family. And- I was embarrassed. Happy Life Day. <laughs> the only thing that stands out in my mind about that, besides about how bad it was, was uh, one of the little Wookies got a hologram music player of some kind that was Jefferson Starship playing. I believe I might still have the 45 of that. Oh, really? How? <laughs> Happy birthday might be to worth you. something. <laughs> now, back in middle school, what did each of you have on your bedroom walls, posters or pictures? Probably NFL-related stuff. Wow, I had curtains that had helmets of all the teams, and I think bed sheets also. But uh, Marvel had these uh, like stickers, these giant stickers that I put everywhere. Middle school, that would have been '78, probably some Star Wars. To me, it wasn't Star Wars; it was the Darth Vader movie and everybody else. Really, that's how I thought of it. It's kind of like Darth Vader and the cast of thousands. Yeah, that was probably what my room in middle school was like. Yeah, I absolutely had the Darth Vader poster that came out with the original film i can still see it in my mind's eye 
I had that and probably some other Star Wars posters. I think I probably had some Kiss posters at that point. And at some point during middle school, I don't exactly know when, I came home with a Farrah Fawcett poster. You guys probably know the one I mean with sort of this red-orange bathing suit. I know exactly Uh what you mean. Yeah. The one. Was there another one? Not as far as I was concerned. (laughs) And put that up on my bedroom wall. My mom came in and saw it. And she was like, well, what is that? And I'm like, well, it's just a poster. And like when my dad got home from work that day, she marches him into my room and says, look what your son hung up on the wall. (laughs) And my dad kind of grinned and said, I don't have any problem with it. So I think that was probably that my first slipping one foot out of adolescence and into the wider world of teenage raging hormones. <laughs> if you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only have one book with you for pleasure to read, what would that one book be that you'd want to have with you? There are so many books that I read as a kid you know, that I read at that sort of golden age of loving Star Wars before I discovered Farrah Fawcett. Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff, Michael Moorcock's Elric's books, um, Robert E. Howard. I think probably Lord of the Rings because it's a big fat book and it takes you a while to get through it. I guess that's probably my answer because if, you know, unless I can get an omnibus of the collected works of pulp master Edgar Rice Burroughs, I guess I got to go with Lord of the Rings. I've had that answer before, too, for the same reasons. (laughs) I would say the more I think about it, this is because it was a late discovery. Years ago, Marvel produced those kind of like collection books called Origins of Marvel Comics. Yes. And on the cover, it had, like, I would assume Stan Lee's hands typing on a typewriter, and you had superheroes popping off the paper. And they had sequels to that, like Son of Origins and Bring on the Bad Guys. Those I had as a kid, but I never read Stan Lee's commentary. I just went right to the comics. And it wasn't until really, oh, late 90s, early 2000s, I actually started reading the prose pages in between and really enjoyed those. And to this day, I haven't finished all of them. I have the books, but I haven't read all of them. It was just that stuff that if I had known as a kid all the insight that was in there, I would have read it from day one, but I didn't. So I would say that sort of thing would be what I'd like to have with me to really revisit and have those uh, inside information about the characters I grew up on. That is a treasure. I have Origins of Marvel Comics and Son of Origins, and to have Stan's thoughts when it was closer to when he made those things, that's really nice to have that insight because after a while the details fade, but within 10 years or so of creation of those books is fantastic. Now, gentlemen, when you're resting and relaxing, when you have that opportunity, what is your beverage of choice? Iced tea. Long Island or just iced tea? Whatever's in the fridge, just iced tea. I like iced tea. Daryl is to a great extent a teetotaler, although the last time we had dinner, I think I got some sake down his throat. Ah. I'm big into all things Japan, so you know, having put away some sake, that was fun. And you know, When I think about it, that was in Colorado, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. at the hibachi place in Colorado. That was a fun night. That, that was a most was. excellent night, what I remember of it. That's <laughs> also when you told me the cross-gen ghost stories, which I still want more of that. I think that's a podcast in and of itself. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, you know, I'm not making any of it up. Uh, <laughs> my drink of choice, probably have to say a mojito. I am very fond of mojitos, and I was fond of mojitos before I went to Cuba. And I went to Cuba a couple of years ago and and became that much more fond of them while I was there because literally every place you walked into handed you one. <laughs> 
I'll tell you what, that's when I fell in love with them was a couple of years ago. I went to Puerto Rico. Same thing. Mojito. Mint. The rum industry is still vibrant in Cuba, but the part of the rum industry that was in Cuba fled to Puerto Rico when Castro took over. I guess you're really getting Cuban rum in Puerto Rico. It's just made in Puerto Rico from the original Cuban recipes. My final question, now I've been thinking about technology and all the changes that have occurred in the past, geez, just the past 10 years alone. Is there any form of technology, a device or something that we no longer use that you misusing something that you liked, some of the old tech that you really kind of miss. My record player. Do you still have one at all, or just you don't use them anymore? I mean, I have a, a crate of old albums, both music and. At one point, Marvel and DC would license out their characters to have almost like stories on record, LP, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I still have a lot of those, and I haven't listened to them in so long. The record player I have is, I don't know, somewhere in a crate somewhere. If I haven't tossed it, because it was thousand years old it's not like you can just go to best buy and, and buy a, a turntable you know I, it might be a little bit easier now because it seems to be a renewed interest in vinyl i, I don't know how that happened I, my daughter was talking about her and her friends were looking for that sort of thing i thought how did that happen it was like oh this is so cool that you know you put the disc on the you know on the device and all that kind of stuff you know i thought okay maybe that's an ohio thing but i was watching a documentary on the news about kids from other countries just fascinated by that I'm like really well you know cds and uh, mp3s contain a lot more but uh, i don't know i have fond memories growing up with record players in one incarnation or the next that would be my choice yeah i have some of those marvel uh comic other companies made them too but they were the ones that had the comic and then the 45 that went with it so you could read along with the comic and hear the voices on the record oh those are power records yes power records that's it <laughs> power yes <record> presents. Yeah. <laughs> right that stuff was great. Yeah. How about you, Ron? You know, I hate to be the Me Too guy, but I, I think I would have to say uh, turntable as well, a record player. Um, not because you can't get the same purpose, you know, using any other. I mean, I've got more music on my phone than I've ever probably had when I was collecting vinyl. But there's something about that package, that tactile package that you would get buying an album that I miss. You know, I think, Daryl, you could actually walk into Best Buy and buy a turntable anytime you want because they're back now. They're very much the collector's model of choice these days. My oldest is very much into music and plays in a band, and he buys most of his music on vinyl. Um, really? And he's had a turntable for a number of years, and he feels like the fidelity is much better on the vinyl than an MP3 or I've heard that. I've a heard disc. That. Or, so, you know, unfortunately, most of my record collection, which I had saved, got destroyed in a basement flood a number of years ago. But I've still got some of it left. My oldest is rebuying a lot of those albums, Clash and Ramones and Replacement, stuff that I listened to in the 80s. He's rebuying a lot of that stuff on vinyl now. Um, I've sort of always been tempted to go, well, maybe I should get a turntable for my office here. But I don't need one more thing to gather dust in my office. <laughs> so I, I think I'll probably leave it as is. But it's interesting how the generation beyond ours or maybe really two generations beyond ours look at the stuff that we cast aside as outmoded and have re-embraced it i guess in some ways it's sort of a comment on the floppy comics that obviously we all grew up with they're still available obviously they're certainly out there but they are not the package of choice not the only package that you can get the material in you can buy it as a trade or a hardcover or digitally but some people still want that collectible floppy. We don't leave stuff behind like floppy monthly comics or turntables or vinyl. They just become more niche. 
But if you want a really nice graphic novel, hardcover, Harkin Traders, the Kickstarter ends on 1221. So by the time this comes out, you'll have just about seven days left to jump on board. Don't delay. Ron, Daryl, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you, Christopher. Appreciate it. Happy to do it. It was a pleasure. On next week's show, I have another Kickstarter spotlighted, Nandor Fox Schaefer. On his Kickstarter Lifeline, it began on December 1st and ends on January 1st, 2019. He is also the author of the successful Kickstarter Seasons, the first volume, Spring. His current Kickstarter, Lifeline, is a love letter to collaboration among artists and creators. Lifeline records the life story of Lewis Wakefield through the eyes of his father, wife, best friend, daughter, a stranger, and his grandson. Each chapter takes place in a different decade of his life, concentrating on Lewis's relationship with one person or more, and the chapters progress in a chronological order from Lewis as a young boy to Lewis as an aged, elderly man. As his story unfolds, alternating from the present day to the past, the reader will piece together Lewis's hopes, fears, dreams, insecurities, successes, and failures through defining situations and conversations. Layers of his personality will be revealed until we come to the end of his life, where Lewis will ask himself one of the most important questions anyone could, was my life worth living? Nandor and I share many similar interests in comics and in movies and television, so we talk quite a bit about that. So I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. Meanwhile, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. I am also on Instagram at Creator Talks Pod, posting my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. The podcast is free and is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo and Dot devices, and on YouTube. If you have a moment, please leave a star rating on iTunes. Taking the time to do that is much appreciated. If you would like to send me an email, send it to contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. That's the best way to reach me. And I want to thank my sponsor, The Comic Book Shop, at 1855 Marsh Road in Wilmington, Delaware. They're at the Plaza 3 Shopping Center. Stop in. It's where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. Their Twitter and Facebook is at comicbookshop.de. That's at comicbookshop.de. There's lots more coming up on Creator Talks. Thank you for joining me this week and spending some time listening to the show. Spread the word and tell a friend about it. I have other episodes already recorded and lots more planned for 2019. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time.